Well, it's no question uh, that we live in divisive times. Uh, that there are difficult conversations that are being interjected uh, into our homes, into our workplaces, into our schools, into our churches. But I wonder if perhaps these hot-button issues are not really what the debate's all about. If maybe these hot-button topics are actually about something much bigger, about who God is and how He relates and impacts our life and our world today. In this series, Encounter Culture, uh, what we're doing is every week we're looking at the gospel. And every week we're looking at just a, a, one particular aspect that we're really zooming in on. And we're looking at how that truth of the gospel impacts our lives today and how it impacts our lives in light of today's world and today's culture. And so if you have your Bibles with you, uh, I'm encouraging you to open them up, or if you uh, already have the Bible app open, you can follow along with us uh, as we begin our journey today. And we're going to start talking about the gospel by starting in the same place that we've started virtually, well, every week in this series so far, in the very beginning. You know, there was a, a theologian from the 20th century, he's been dead for uh, several decades now, uh, his name was Francis Schaeffer, and he had this incredible statement that said, the gospel does not begin with, and Jesus died for your sins. The gospel begins with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And as we continue on in our journey of understanding the gospel and the core truth of who God is and how he is working amongst our world, we come to this. Again, what we've read several weeks now in a row, in verse 27 of chapter 1, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And we've been standing on this core gospel truth that you and I and all human beings, no matter where they come from or what they look like, what color or what shape they may take, all are created in the image of God. Now, here's what I want us to do today, is I want us to build upon that idea as we look deeper at this core gospel truth and how it impacts our lives, especially in light of today's world and today's culture. And we're going to do that by jumping over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And so if you're in the Bible app, it'll be easy because that's going to be next in line. And I'm just going to focus on verse 13 for a minute. We'll back up uh, in, in a few minutes and and zoom out a little bit, but 1 Corinthians 6.13, part of it says, the body is meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Now here's what I want to talk about and build upon on this idea that we are created in God's image. The first is that we are not only created by God, but that we are created for God. For the body is meant for the Lord. We are not only created by God, we are created for God. We were not created for self-gratification. We were created for God-glorification. And that's a central tenet to the understanding and idea of being created by God in His image. But there's one more point that I want us to focus on before we go any further. And that's the second part, and the Lord for the body. And here's 
a core gospel truth that we have to establish before we go any farther today. And that is that God is for you, not against you. Now I want you to let that sit in for a minute. God created you in His image. We were created not only by Him, but for Him. And that God is for you, not against you. Now, as we build upon that truth, we're going to step back a little bit and see how that impacts our lives in light of today's world and culture. And we're going to do that by looking at all of verse, verses 12 and 13. Now, we only looked at part of verse 13, and I actually intentionally edited it down a little bit. But now we're going to look at the whole picture as it stands And it says this, all things are lawful for me. Now, here's what I want you to pay attention to. I want you to pay attention to the quotation marks. Normally, we probably don't pay a lot of attention to the quotation marks. It's it's easy to read and just keep reading. But they're a big clue in the argument that Paul, who's writing this letter to Christians who live in the ancient city of Corinth in what is modern-day Greece, he's actually writing 1 Corinthians as a response to a letter that they wrote to him. So here, Paul is quoting these Christians in the ancient city of Corinth back to them, and then he's giving his response. So in quotes, he's quoting them, all things are lawful for me. That's what they said, and here's his response. But not all things are helpful. He's going to build on this idea again. All things are lawful for me. He's quoting them again. His response, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Again, he's quoting them. We don't have the full expression of their argument, but apparently they were sort of trying to justify something. And Paul's response, and God will destroy both one and the other. So let's not make either one of them all that important, shall we? And then here, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And so here's what this core gospel truth teaches us. That sexual immorality, going against God's design and desire uh, for us, for our bodies, for our sexuality, is rebellion and rejection of part of this core tenet of the gospel and the gospel itself. Now here's what we're going to do. We're going to back up a little bit and we're going to talk for a few moments about what exactly is God's design and intent for our sexuality. Now, a lot of the verses that I'm about to reference, I won't be reading them, but they're not going to be in the Bible app or on the screen. And that's mostly because it would take far too long for us to read through every single thing that the Bible has to say on the subject matter. So we're going to look at a broad scope of what the Bible teaches. Now, if, if you want to dive deeper, maybe we reference a scripture, an idea that, that you have questions about or you want to go deeper in, as always, this sermon is available in iTunes and Google Play Store and on our website if you want to go back and re-listen. Or, as I mentioned earlier, there's that connection card in your seat or in the Bible where you can ask questions, you can begin a conversation. If maybe something today that we talk about spurs a, a new question or new thought or a new concern, then that's a conversation that we can begin having. You can use that connection card to begin that conversation. And so we're going to do a quick overview of just some of the things that God says about 
his design for our sexuality, some of which our culture will happily agree with and some of which it will not. And then we'll kind of talk about how the gospel impacts how we view and talk and think and act on this subject. Ultimately, what the Bible teaches that God, that sex is designed by God to be expressed in the covenant relationship of marriage between one man, one woman. Proverbs 5, Malachi chapter 2. Now, within that, there are boundaries. Within that idea, that creates boundaries, some of which our culture is very comfortable with. Uh, Prohibitions against things like prostitution, violence with animals, with relatives. All those come from the scriptures. Leviticus 19, Deuteronomy 23, Proverbs 6, Deuteronomy 22, Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, 1 Corinthians 5. But there are also some boundaries that come along with that idea that we recognize run very counter to the message that we hear and see in culture. Boundaries that run counter to our culture is that sex is wrong between a man and a woman who are not married. Exodus 20, Leviticus 20, Proverbs 6, Matthew 19, Romans 13, Hebrews 13. And here's what the Bible teaches. That's regardless of whether it's before, during, or after marriage. Now, there are small parts of that that our culture will at least give a little credence to. The idea of adultery, sex not between a man and a woman who are married, but when one or both parties are. But here's what's interesting. For our culture, the problem with that is not that it's a moral sin, but that it's a relational one. The problem isn't that by doing something like that, that we have sinned against God. Really, the problem is that you've sinned against your spouse. But God sees it in a different light. And then also the boundaries that are created by the Bible's definition of what God designed sex for means that any sexual activity between two men or two women, regardless of what their relationship is labeled as, goes against God's plan. Genesis 19, Leviticus 18, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Timothy 1, Romans 1. Now let's be honest, at this point we've crossed the line in the sand, haven't we? There's a line that's been drawn in the sand by our culture and we've crossed it. But the reality is we haven't gone too far, we're just getting started. So now I'm going to invite you to look at Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 and 28, only 28 will be on the screen. Verse 27, but you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Verse 28, but I say to you, this is Jesus speaking, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So not only is it contrary to God's grand design and desire for you, which would mean therefore a sin, to possess or cultivate sexual desires for others outside of marriage, as we're about to see, it's also wrong to provoke sexual desires in others outside of marriage. To provoke them in the way you dress, 1 Timothy 2, in the way you talk, Proverbs 5 and 7, and in the way, in the way you joke and are entertained, Ephesians 5. I want to look at a little bit bigger of a passage having to do with this idea 
of stepping outside of the bounds of God's design for our sexuality. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their body among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Ultimately, God forbids sexual worship. The idea that we can find complete and lasting and ultimate satisfaction and personal fulfillment in sexual behaviors and activities. All throughout Scripture and human history, people have mistakenly fallen into the trap that thinking that a God-created pleasure could bring total satisfaction, ultimate fulfillment. And the reality is we still believe that lie today many times. We think if we just had a certain amount of freedom, if we had just had a certain amount of sexual freedom to express it in this way or that, then we would be whole, then we would be complete, then we would be happy, then we would be satisfied. But the truth is, like anything else that becomes an idol, it always takes more than it gives. And it never delivers on its promises. And God says this for his glory and for our good. Now at that point, many of us sometimes question and wrestle. The idea that God is for us. That God would say these things both for his glory and for our good, we wrestle with. Here's here's why we're talking about this today. It is not to point fingers and to call out particular sins of anyone else or our culture. I want to make sure this is extra clear. We are talking about this today to expose the sin in our own hearts. This is not about someone you're sitting next to. This is not about someone you're thinking, I wish they had shown up today. This is not about someone who you're thinking, oh, I've been trying to have this conversation. This is not about... Let's point fingers at people who aren't here. This is about looking inward and exposing the sin in our own hearts. Based off this Romans 1 passage and and other teachings and scripture, here's what we learn. Before it becomes sinful outward behavior, it starts with a disordered mind. Proverbs 1 and Uh, excuse me, Romans 1 and Proverbs 14. Before it becomes a disordered mind, it starts with a darkened heart, Romans 1. And before it becomes a darkened heart, it starts with a warped spirit of rebellion. 
let's just acknowledge some things together. We are all sinners. Step one, we are all sinners. Step two, we are all sexual sinners. There's no one in here who stands innocent or immune. And whether it be homosexuality, adultery, premarital sex, or any other form of behavior to cultivate desires for others outside of marriage, pornography, whether it be immodest clothing to provoke desires in others by fueling or funding an industry that's built upon the exploitation of vulnerable, abused, mistreated, and harmed individuals. All of us are sexual sinners. Step three, we are all personally, biologically, culturally, and spiritually predisposed towards sexual sin. All of us. None of us have a right to a particular argument or justification for it. We're all in that boat. For we all have disordered thoughts that we are prone to explain or excuse away for the sin. Five, we all have darkened hearts that tempt us to fulfill sexual desires outside of God's designed expression for those. And finally, we all have a warped spirit of rebellion that wants to be our own God and reject the honor, glory, and worship due the one true God. There's no pointing fingers in this room. It's a recognition that all of us have stepped outside of God's boundaries for His design for our lives. How we may have stepped out looks different for different people. What proves tempting for different people is going to look different in every situation. But none of us are innocent. None of us are innocent from stepping outside of God's design, not just for our sexuality, but for our lives. That we were created not just by God, but for God. That we were created not for self-gratification, but for God-glorification. And a failure to recognize that even in the midst of things we don't understand or would like to disagree with, God is for us. He is for His glory and our good. Now here's the beautiful thing and the beautiful picture of the gospel that we're given. One of the most striking things about the New Testament's teaching on sexual immorality, all forms mentioned today, is that right on the hills of the passages that condemn the activity, there are, without exception, resounding affirmations of God's love, His extravagant mercy and redemption. That God condemns sexual activity and behaviors outside of His desired and designed plans for us, yet amazingly, at great cost to Himself, lavishes His love on all of us. Let's look at a couple of those together. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, 
nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But the next verse, and such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The New Testament rings with the good news that the unrighteous may be redeemed. Like the prodigal son welcomed home by open arms of his father. Regardless of what our past looks like, at great cost to himself, God has opened up the way for all of us. Let's look at another, 1 Timothy 1, verses 8 through 11. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the godly and ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. And a few verses later, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, and as Paul would put it in his own words, of whom I am the foremost. That all of those things about us were true, yet God chose to love us and die for us. Let's look at one more, Romans 1. We've read part of this. We'll read a few verses that we didn't get to earlier, verses 26 and 27. For this reason, God gave them, that was the people that we talked about earlier in Romans 1, up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And the beauty of the message of Romans, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. An undeserved gift. Further on in Romans, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, we didn't read it, but we're commanded to flee from sexual immorality. And two verses later, we're told why. Because our bodies were bought with a price. Because Jesus gave up his body to wash and redeem and renew ours.
Jesus gave up his life so that in him we could find real life. Life that brings the ultimate satisfaction, the ultimate wholeness. The satisfaction that so many other things in our world promise but can never deliver on. Jesus gave his life so that you and I could walk in and embrace and experience the fulfillment of every promise more than all we could ask or imagine. Today's message really isn't about culture. It's not really about anyone else's message. But the message that God wants to speak to you and I today. That all of us are tempted to find wholeness and satisfaction and joy in other things. That all of us are tempted to be our own gods and decide that we have the right exclusively to do what we want with our life and our body. And it's a recognition that we were not only created by God but for God. That we were not created for self-gratification but for God-glorification. And that ultimately God says these things for his glory and for your good. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we stand and we sit before you this morning as sinners. As sinners in so many ways. And we have no option other than to fall before you. To fall into your arms to trust ourselves to your love and your grace and your mercy that is so undeserving in our lives. And Lord Jesus, we ask for forgiveness. We ask you to move among us, to do a work in us, to renew our spirits, to wash us clean. Will you keep your eyes closed? As we enter into a time of response, I want us to just think about the call of the gospel for a moment. The gospel is not just about being forgiven for your sins and for your lifestyle mistakes. It's bigger than that. It's not just an invitation to wipe the slate clean and move on. It's a call of repentance, rejection, denial, and death. It's a call to repentance, to turn from following your own path and to follow Christ. It's a call to rejection of yourself as the God of your own life. It's a call to denial of your right to do what feels good, comfortable, or natural. And it's a call to the death of yourself to the death of whatever labels that you or this culture would like to put on you to define your identity. It's a call to be raised up to new life in Christ. And the invitation is before you this morning to lay down your life, to take up the life that Christ offers.
The Bible says that in Galatians 2.20, for I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That we don't live, Jesus now lives in us. The invitation, will you surrender your life to Jesus? Will you trust that He is calling you to things for His glory and His good? Will you put Him on the throne of your life this morning? No matter where you come from, no matter what mistakes have been made, Lord Jesus, thank you. As we respond to who you are and the call of your gospel in our lives, I pray that we would honor you with all that we say and do. That you would be made much of in this room. That we would surrender everything to you.